Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The New Statesman. You're listening to audio long reads from The New Statesman. The best of our reported features and essays read aloud. In this episode, when H.G. Wells met Joseph Stalin, read by Adrian Bradley and Chris Stone. The article was first published as a special New Statesman supplement on the 27th of October, 1934. H.G. Wells's 1934 interview with Stalin and the debate that followed is one of the most striking episodes in the history of the New Statesman. Wells, a novelist and committed socialist famous for the late Victorian science fiction fantasies such as The Time Machine and The War of the Worlds, used the interview to try and coax Stalin into a more conciliatory position, challenging, too gently for some, his views on international relations, the rhetoric of class war and freedom of expression for writers. The interview took place in Moscow, at a time when many British socialists and fellow travellers were journeying to the Soviet Union seeking inspiration in the communist project. Wells was on the lookout for signs that his socialist world state was coming into being, and the interview with Stalin was conceived as a foil to the novelist's meeting with Franklin D. Roosevelt the previous year. The intention was to make a comparison between the New Deal and the five-year plan and to harness the progressive potential of both. Wells thought they were similar projects and hoped that they might somehow meet in the middle. As he put it to Stalin, quote, Is there not a relation in ideas, a kinship of ideas and needs between Washington and Moscow? But Stalin's insistence on the, quote, antagonism between the two worlds more accurately prefigured the Cold War to come. The interview, which was criticised from both sides as either too indulgent or too critical of Stalin, sees the dying ideals of Edwardian liberalism chastened by an encounter with modern totalitarianism. It provoked strong reactions in the letters' pages of the New Statesman from George Bernard Shaw and John Maynard Keynes, respectively the co-founder and the then chairman of the magazine, resulting in a clash between the three intellectual giants – that revealed a great deal about the tensions within the left in the 1930s. Kingsley Martin, the then editor of The New Statesman, thought the interview and the letters interesting enough to be republished as a pamphlet. I am very much obliged to you, Mr Stalin, for agreeing to see me. I was in the United States recently. I had a long conversation with President Roosevelt and tried to ascertain what his leading ideas were. 
Now I have come to ask what you are doing to change the world. Not so very much. I wander around the world as a common man, and as a common man, observe what is going on around me. Important public men like yourself are not common men. Of course, history alone can show how important this or that public man has been. At all events, you do not look at the world as a common man. I am not pretending humility. What I mean is that I try to see the world through the eyes of a common man, and not as a party politician or a responsible administrator. My visit to the United States excited my mind. The old financial world is collapsing. The economic life of the country is being reorganized on new lines. Lenin said, "We must learn to do business. Learn this from the capitalists. Today, the capitalists have to learn from you to grasp the spirit of socialism." It seems to me that what is taking place in the United States is a profound reorganization, the creation of planned, that is, socialist economy. You and Roosevelt begin from two different starting points, but is there not a relation in ideas, a kinship of ideas between Moscow and Washington? In Washington, I was struck by the same thing I see going on here. They are building offices. They are creating a number of state regulation bodies. They are organizing a long-needed civil service. Their need, like yours, is directive ability. The United States is pursuing a different aim from that which we are pursuing in the USSR. The aim which the Americans are pursuing arose out of the economic troubles, out of the economic crisis. The Americans want to rid themselves of the crisis on the basis of private capitalist activity, without changing the economic basis. They are trying to reduce to a minimum the ruin. The losses caused by the existing economic system. Here, however, as you know, in place of the old, destroyed economic basis, an entirely different, new economic basis has been created. Even if the Americans you mention partly achieve their aim, i.e., reduce those losses to a minimum, they will not destroy the roots of the anarchy which is inherent in the existing capitalist system. They are preserving the economic system which must inevitably lead and cannot but. Lead to anarchy in production. Thus, at best, it will be a matter not of the reorganization of society, not of abolishing the old social system which gives rise to anarchy and crises, but of restricting certain of its excesses. Subjectively, perhaps, these Americans think they are reorganizing society. Objectively, however, they are preserving the present basis of society. That is why, objectively. There will be no reorganization of society, nor will there be planned economy. What is planned economy? What are some of its attributes? Planned economy tries to abolish unemployment. Let us suppose it's possible, while preserving the capitalist system, to reduce unemployment to a certain minimum. But surely no capitalist would ever agree to the complete abolition of unemployment. To the abolition of the reserve army of unemployed, the purpose of which is to bring pressure on the labour market to ensure a supply of cheap labour. You will never compel a capitalist to incur loss to himself and agree to a lower rate of profit for the sake of satisfying the needs of the people. Without getting rid of the capitalists, without abolishing the principle of private property in the means of production, it is impossible to create planned economy. I agree with much of what you have said, but I would like to stress the point that if a country as a whole adopts the principle of planned economy, if a government gradually, step by step, begins consistently to apply this principle, 
the financial oligarchy will at last be abolished and socialism, in the Anglo-Saxon meaning of the word, will be brought about. The effect of the ideas of Roosevelt's New Deal is most powerful. In my opinion, they are socialist ideas. It seems to me that instead of stressing the antagonism between the two worlds, we should, in the present circumstances, strive to establish a common tongue for all constructive forces. In speaking of the impossibility of realising the principles of planned economy, while preserving the economic basis of capitalism, I do not in the least desire to belittle the outstanding personal qualities of Roosevelt, his initiative, courage and determination. Undoubtedly, Roosevelt stands out as one of the strongest figures among all the captains of the contemporary capitalist world. That is why I would like once again to emphasise the point that my conviction that planned economy is impossible under the conditions of capitalism does not mean that I have any doubts about the personal abilities, talent and courage of President Roosevelt. But if the circumstances are unfavourable, the most talented captain cannot reach the goal you refer to. Theoretically, of course, the possibility of marching gradually step by step under the conditions of capitalism towards the goal which you call socialism in the Anglo-Saxon meaning of the word is not precluded. But what will this socialism be? At best, bridling to some extent the most unbridled of individual representatives of capitalist profit, some increase in the application of the principle of regulation in national economy. That is all very well. But as soon as Roosevelt, or any other captain in the contemporary bourgeois world, proceeds to undertake something serious against the foundation of capitalism, he will inevitably suffer utter defeat. The banks, the industries, the large enterprises, the large farms, are not in Roosevelt's hands. All these are private property. The railroads, the mercantile fleet, all these belong to private owners. And finally, the army of skilled workers, the engineers, the technicians, these too are not at Roosevelt's command. They are at the command of the private owners. They all work for the private owners. We must not forget the functions of the state in the bourgeois world. The state is an institution that organises the defence of the country, organises the maintenance of order. It is an apparatus for collecting taxes. The capitalist state does not deal much with economy in the strict sense of the word. The latter is not in the hands of the state. On the contrary, the state is in the hands of capitalist economy. That is why I fear that in spite of all his energies and abilities, Roosevelt will not achieve the goal you mention, if indeed that is his goal. Perhaps in the course of several generations it will be possible to approach this goal somewhat, but I personally think that even this is not very probable. Perhaps I believe more strongly in the economic interpretation of politics than you do. Huge forces striving for better organisation, for the better functioning of the community, that is for socialism, have been brought into action by invention and modern science. Organisation and the regulation of individual action have become mechanical necessities, irrespective of social theories. If we begin with the state control of the banks and then follow with the control of the heavy industries, of industry in general, of commerce, etc., such an all-embracing control will be equivalent to the state ownership of all branches of national economy. Socialism and individualism are not opposites like black and white. There are many intermediate stages between them. There is individualism that borders on brigandage, 
and there is discipline and organisation that are the equivalent of socialism. The introduction of planned economy depends, to a large degree, upon the organisers of economy, upon the skilled technical intelligentsia who, step by step, can be converted to the socialist principles of organisation. And this is the most important thing, because organisation comes before socialism. It is the more important fact. Without organisation, the socialist idea is a mere idea. There is no, nor should there be, irreconcilable contrast between the individual and the collective, between the interests of the individual person and the interests of the collective. There should be no such contrast, because collectivism, socialism, does not deny but combines individual interests with the interests of the collective. Socialism cannot abstract itself from individual interests. Socialist society alone can most fully satisfy these personal interests. More than that, socialist society alone can firmly safeguard the interests of the individual. In this sense, there is no irreconcilable contrast between individualism and socialism. But can we deny the contrast between classes, between the propertied class, the capitalist class, and the toiling class, the proletarian class. On the one hand, we have the propertied class, which owns the banks, the factories, the mines, transport, the plantations and colonies. These people see nothing but their own interests. They're striving after profits. They do not submit to the will of the collective. They strive to subordinate every collective to their will. On the other hand, we have the class of the poor, the exploited class, which owns neither factories nor works nor banks, which is compelled to live by selling its labour power to the capitalists and which lacks the opportunity to satisfy its most elementary requirements. How can such opposite interests and strivings be reconciled? As far as I know, Roosevelt has not succeeded in finding the path of conciliation between these interests, and it is impossible as experience has shown. Incidentally, you know the situation in the US better than I do, as I've never been there and I watch American affairs mainly from literature. But I have some experience in fighting for socialism, and this experience tells me that if Roosevelt makes a real attempt to satisfy the interests of the proletarian class at the expense of the capitalist class, the latter will put another president in his place. The capitalists will say... Presidents come and presidents go, but we go on forever. If this or that president does not protect our interests, we shall find another. What can the president oppose to the will of the capitalist class? I object to this simplified classification of mankind into poor and rich. Of course, there is a category of people which strive only for profit, but are not these people regarded as nuisances in the West just as much as here? Are there not plenty of people in the West for whom profit is not an end? who own a certain amount of wealth, who want to invest and obtain a profit from this investment, but who do not regard this as the main object. In my opinion, there is a numerous class of people who admit that the present system is unsatisfactory and who are destined to play a great role in future capitalist society. During the past few years, I've been much engaged in and have thought of the need for conducting propaganda in favour of socialism and cosmopolitanism among wide circles of engineers, airmen, military technical people, etc., it is useless to approach these circles with two-track class war propaganda. These people understand the condition of the world. They understand that it is a bloody muddle. 
but they regard your simple class war antagonism as nonsense. You object to the simplified classification into rich and poor. Of course, there is a middle stratum. There is the technical intelligentsia that you've mentioned, and among which there are very good and very honest people. Among them, there are also dishonest and wicked people. There are all sorts of people among them. But first of all, mankind is divided into rich and poor, into property owners and exploited. And to abstract oneself from this fundamental division and from the antagonism between poor and rich means abstracting oneself from the fundamental fact. I do not deny the existence of intermediate middle strata, which either take the side of one or the other of these two conflicting classes, or else take up a neutral or semi-neutral position in the struggle. But I repeat, to abstract oneself from this fundamental division in society and from the fundamental struggle between the two main classes means ignoring facts. The struggle is going on and will continue. The outcome will be determined by the proletarian class, the working class. But are there not many people who are not poor, but who work and work productively? Of course, there are small landowners, artisans, small traders. But it's not these people who decide the fate of a country, but the toiling masses who produce all the things society requires. But there are very different kinds of capitalists. There are capitalists who only think about profit, about getting rich, but there are also those who are prepared to make sacrifices. Take old J.P. Morgan, for example. He only thought about profit. He was a parasite on society. Simply, he merely accumulated wealth. But take John D. Rockefeller. He's a brilliant organiser. He has set an example of how to organise the delivery of oil that is worthy of emulation. Or take Henry Ford. Of course, Ford is selfish, but is he not a passionate organiser of rationalised production from whom you take lessons? I would like to emphasise the fact that recently an important change in opinion towards the USSR has taken place in English-speaking countries. The reason for this, first of all, is the position of Japan and the events in Germany. But there are other reasons beside those arising from international politics. There is a more profound reason, namely the recognition by many people of the fact that the system based on private profit is breaking down. Under these circumstances, it seems to me, we must not bring to the forefront the antagonism between the two worlds, but should strive to combine all the constructive movements, all the constructive forces in one line as much as possible. It seems to me that I am more to the left than you, Mr Stalin. I think the old system is nearer to its end than you think. The article will continue after the break. For the text version of this article and all our long reads, subscribe to The New Statesman for just £1 a week for 12 weeks using our special podcast offer. Just visit newstatesman.com forward slash podcast offer. If you're enjoying our audio long reads, you might also like the New Statesman's international news podcast, World Review. Twice a week, the international team unpack the most significant stories in world affairs and interview special guests for their unique perspective and expertise. Get better informed with World Review, available wherever you get your podcasts. 
Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. In speaking of the capitalists who strive only for profit, only to get rich, I do not want to say that these are the most worthless people capable of nothing else. Many of them undoubtedly possess great organizing talent, which I do not dream of denying. We Soviet people learn a great deal from the capitalists. And Morgan, whom you characterize so unfavorably, was undoubtedly a good, capable organizer. But if you mean people who are prepared to reconstruct the world, of course, you will not be able to find them in the ranks of those who faithfully serve the cause of profit. We and they stand at opposite poles. You mentioned Ford. Of course he is a capable organiser of production. But don't you know his attitude towards the working class? Don't you know how many workers he throws on the street? The capitalist is riveted to profit, and no power on earth can tear him away from it. Capitalism will be abolished not by organisers of production, not by the technical intelligentsia, but by the working class, because the aforementioned strata do not play an independent role. The engineer, the organiser of production, does not work as he would like to, but as he is ordered, in such a way as to serve the interests of his employers. There are exceptions, of course. There are people in this stratum who've awakened from the intoxication of capitalism. The technical intelligentsia can, under certain conditions, perform miracles and greatly benefit mankind. But it can also cause great harm. We Soviet people have not a little experience of the technical intelligentsia. 
after the October Revolution, a certain section of the technical intelligentsia refused to take part in the work of constructing the new society. They opposed this work of construction and sabotaged it. We did all we possibly could to bring the technical intelligentsia into this work of construction. We tried this way and that. Not a little time passed before our technical intelligentsia agreed actively to assist in the new system. Today, the best section of this technical intelligentsia is in the front rank of the builders of socialist society. Having this experience, we are far from underestimating the good and the bad sides of the technical intelligentsia, and we know that on the one hand, it can do harm, and on the other hand, it can perform miracles. Of course, things would be different if it were possible at one stroke, spiritually, to tear the technical intelligentsia away from the capitalist world, but that is utopia. Are there many of the technical intelligentsia who would dare break away from the bourgeois world and set to work reconstructing society? Do you think there are many people of this kind, say, in England or in France? No. There are few who would be willing to break away from their employers and begin reconstructing the world. Besides, can we lose sight of the fact that in order to transform the world, it is necessary to have political power? It seems to me, Mr. Wells, that you greatly underestimate the question of political power, that it entirely drops out of your conception. What can those, even with the best intentions in the world, do if they are unable to raise the question of seizing power and do not possess power? At best, they can help the class which takes power, but they cannot change the world themselves. This can only be done by a great class which will take the place of the capitalist class and become the sovereign master as the latter was before. This class is the working class. Of course, the assistance of the technical intelligentsia must be accepted, and the latter, in turn, must be assisted. But it must not be thought that the technical intelligentsia can play an independent historical role. The transformation of the world is a great, complicated and painful process. For this task, a great class is required. Big ships go on long voyages. Yes, but for long voyages, a captain and navigator are required. That is true, but what is first required for a long voyage is a big ship. What is a navigator without a ship? An idle man. The big ship is humanity, not a class. You, Mr. Wells, evidently start out with the assumption that all men are good. I, however, do not forget that there are many wicked men. I do not believe in the goodness of the bourgeoisie. I remember the situation with regard to the technical intelligentsia several decades ago. At that time, the technical intelligentsia was numerically small, but there was much to do, and every engineer, technician and intellectual found his opportunity – that is why the technical intelligentsia was the least revolutionary class. Now, however, there is a superabundance of technical intellectuals, and their mentality has changed very sharply. The skilled man, who had formerly never listened to a revolutionary talk, is now greatly interested in it. Recently, I was dining with the Royal Society, our great English scientific society. The President's speech was a speech for social planning and scientific control, Thirty years ago, they would not have listened to what I say to them now. Today, the man at the head of a royal society holds revolutionary views and insists on the scientific reorganisation of human society. Your class war propaganda has not kept pace with these facts. Mentality changes. 
Yes, I know this, and this is to be explained by the fact that capitalist society is now in a cul-de-sac. The capitalists are seeking, but cannot find, a way out of this cul-de-sac that would be compatible with the dignity of this class, compatible with the interests of this class. They could, to some extent, crawl out of the crisis on their hands and knees, but they cannot find an exit that would enable them to walk out of it with head raised high, a way out that would not fundamentally disturb the interests of capitalism. This, of course, is realized by wide circles of the technical intelligentsia. A large section of it is beginning to realize the community of its interests with those of the class which is capable of pointing the way out of the cul-de-sac. You, of all people, know something about revolutions, Mr. Stalin, from a practical side. Do the masses ever rise? Is it not an established truth that all revolutions are made by a minority? To bring about a revolution, a leading revolutionary minority is required. But the most talented, devoted and energetic minority would be helpless if it did not rely upon the at least passive support of millions. At least passive? Perhaps subconscious? Partly also the semi-instinctive and semi-conscious but without the support of millions, the best minority is impotent. I watch communist propaganda in the West, and it seems to me that in modern conditions, this propaganda sounds very old-fashioned, because it is insurrectionary propaganda. Propaganda in favour of a violent overthrow of the social system was all very well when it was directed against tyranny, but under modern conditions, when the system is collapsing anyhow, stress should be laid on efficiency, on competence, on productiveness, not on insurrection. It seems to me that the insurrectionary note is obsolete. The communist propaganda in the West is a nuisance to constructive-minded people. Of course, the old system is breaking down, decaying. That is true. But it's also true that new efforts are being made by other methods, by every means, to protect, to save this dying system. You draw a wrong conclusion from a correct postulate. You rightly state that the old world is breaking down. But you're wrong in thinking that it's breaking down of its own accord. No, the substitution of one social system for another is a complicated and long revolutionary process. It is not simply a spontaneous process, but a struggle. It is a process connected with the clash of classes. Capitalism is decaying, but it must not be compared simply with a tree which has decayed to such an extent that it must fall to the ground of its own accord. No, revolution, the substitution of one social system for another, has always been a struggle, a painful and cruel struggle, a life and death struggle. And every time the people of the new world came into power, they had to defend themselves against the attempts of the old world to restore the old power by force. These people of the new world always had to be on the alert, always had to be ready to repel the attacks of the old world upon the new system. Yes, you are right when you say that the old social system is breaking down, but it is not breaking down of its own accord. Take fascism, for example. Fascism is a reactionary force which is trying to preserve the old system by means of violence. What will you do with the fascists? Argue with them? Try to convince them? But this will have no effect upon them at all. Communists do not in the least 
idealized methods of violence. But they, the communists, do not want to be taken by surprise. They cannot count on the old world voluntarily departing from the stage. They see that the old system is violently defending itself. And that is why the communists say to the working class, answer violence with violence. Do all you can to prevent the old dying order from crushing you. Do not permit it to put manacles on your hands, on the hands with which you will overthrow the old system. As you see, the communists regard the substitution of one social system for another not simply as a spontaneous and peaceful process, but as a complicated, long and violent process. Communists cannot ignore facts. But look at what is now going on in the capitalist world. The collapse is not a simple one. It is the outbreak of reactionary violence which is degenerating to gangsterism. And it seems to me that when it comes to a conflict with reactionary and unintelligent violence, socialists can appeal to the law, and instead of regarding the police as the enemy, they should support them in the fight against the reactionaries. I think that it is useless operating with the methods of the old insurrectionary socialism. The communists base themselves on rich historical experience, which teaches that obsolete classes do not voluntarily abandon the stage of history. Recall the history of England in the 17th century. Did not many say that the old social system had decayed? But did it not, nevertheless, require a Cromwell to crush it by force? Cromwell acted on the basis of a constitution and in the name of constitutional order. In the name of the constitution, he resorted to violence, beheaded the king, dispersed parliament, arrested some and beheaded others. Or take an example from our history. Was it not clear for a long time that the Tsarist system was decaying, was breaking down? But how much blood had to be shed in order to overthrow it? And what about the October Revolution? Were there not plenty of people who knew that we alone, the Bolsheviks, were indicating the only correct way out? Was it not clear that Russian capitalism had decayed? But you know how great was the resistance, how much blood had to be shed in order to defend the October Revolution from all its enemies. Or take France at the end of the 18th century. Long before 1789, it was clear to many how rotten the royal power, the feudal system, was. But a popular insurrection, a clash of classes, was not, could not, be avoided. Why? Because the classes which must abandon the stage of history are the last to become convinced that their role is ended. It is impossible to convince them of this. They think that the fissures in the decaying edifice of the old order can be repaired and saved. That is why dying classes take to arms and resort to every means to save their existence as a ruling class. But were there not a few lawyers at the head of a great French revolution? I do not deny the role of the intelligentsia in revolutionary movements. Was the great French Revolution a lawyer's revolution and not a popular revolution, which achieved victory by rousing vast masses of the people against feudalism and championed the interests of the Third Estate? And did the lawyers among the leaders of the great French Revolution act in accordance with the laws of the old order? Did they not introduce new bourgeois revolutionary law? The rich experience of history teaches that up to now not a single class has voluntarily made way for another class. There is no such precedent in history. The communists have learned this lesson of history. Communists would welcome the voluntary departure of the bourgeoisie. But such a turn of affairs is improbable 
That is what experience teaches. That is why the communists want to be prepared for the worst and call upon the working class to be vigilant, to be prepared for battle. Who wants a captain who lulls the vigilance of his army, a captain who does not understand that his enemy will not surrender, that he must be crushed? To be such a captain means deceiving, betraying the working class. That is why I think that what seems to you to be old-fashioned is in fact a measure of revolutionary expediency for the working class. I do not deny that force has to be used, but I think the forms of the struggle should fit as closely as possible to the opportunities presented by the existing laws, which must be defended against reactionary attacks. There is no need to disorganise the old system, because it is disorganising itself enough as it is. That is why it seems to me insurrection against the old order, against the law, is obsolete, old-fashioned. Incidentally, I exaggerate in order to bring the truth out more clearly. I can formulate my point of view in the following way. First, I am for order. Second, I attack the present system insofar as it cannot assure order. Third, I think that class war propaganda may detach from socialism just those educated people whom socialism needs. In order to achieve a great object, an important social object, there must be a main force, a bulwark, a revolutionary class. Next, it's necessary to organise the assistance of an auxiliary force for this main force. In this case, the auxiliary force is the party to which the best forces of the intelligentsia belong. Just now you spoke about educated people. But what educated people did you have in mind? Were there not plenty of educated people on the side of the old order in England in the 17th century, in France at the end of the 18th century, and in Russia in the epoch of the October Revolution? The old order had in its service many highly educated people who defended the old order, who opposed the new order. Education is a weapon the effect of which is determined by the hands which wield it, by who is to be struck down. Of course, the proletariat, socialism, needs highly educated people. Clearly, simpletons cannot help the proletariat to fight for socialism, to build a new society. I do not underestimate the role of the intelligentsia. On the contrary, I emphasise it. The question is, however, which intelligentsia are we discussing? because there are different kinds of intelligentsia. There can be no revolution without a radical change in the educational system. It is sufficient to quote two examples. The example of a German republic, which did not touch the old educational system, and therefore never became a republic. And the example of a British Labour Party, which lacks the determination to insist on a radical change in the educational system. That is a correct observation. Permit me now to reply to your three points. First, the main thing for the revolution is the existence of a social bulwark. This bulwark of the revolution is the working class. Second, an auxiliary force is required, that which the communists call a party. To the party belong the intelligent workers and those elements of the technical intelligentsia which are closely connected with the working class. The intelligentsia can be strong only if it combines with the working class. If it opposes the working class, it becomes a cipher. Third, political power is required as a lever for change. 
The new political power creates the new laws, the new order, which is revolutionary order. I do not stand for any kind of order. I stand for order that corresponds to the interests of the working class. If, however, any of the laws of the old order can be utilised in the interests of the struggle for the new order, the old laws should be utilised. And finally, you are wrong if you think that the communists are enamoured of violence. They would be very pleased to drop violent methods if the ruling class agreed to give way to the working class. But the experience of history speaks against such an assumption. There was a case in the history of England, however, of a class voluntarily handing over power to another class. In the period between 1830 and 1870, the aristocracy, whose influence was still very considerable at the end of the 18th century, voluntarily, without a severe struggle, surrendered power to the bourgeoisie, which serves as a sentimental support of the monarchy. Subsequently, this transference of power led to the establishment of a rule of the financial oligarchy. But you have imperceptibly passed from questions of revolution to questions of reform. This is not the same thing. Don't you think that the Chartist movement played a great role in the reforms in England in the 19th century? The Chartists did little and disappeared without leaving a trace. I do not agree with you. The Chartists and the strike movement, which they organised, played a great role. They compelled the ruling class to make a number of concessions in regard to the franchise, in regard to abolishing the so-called rotten boroughs, and in regard to some of the points of the Charter. Chartism played a not unimportant historical role and compelled a section of the ruling classes to make certain concessions, reforms, in order to avert great shocks. Generally speaking, it must be said that of all the ruling classes, the ruling classes of England, both the aristocracy and the bourgeoisie, proved to be the cleverest, most flexible from the point of view of their class interests, from the point of view of maintaining their power. Take as an example, say from modern history, the general strike in England in 1926. The first thing any other bourgeoisie would have done in the face of such an event, when the General Council of Trade Unions called for a strike, would have been to arrest the trade union leaders. The British bourgeoisie did not do that, and it acted cleverly from the point of view of its own interests. I cannot conceive of such a flexible strategy being employed by the bourgeoisie in the United States, Germany or France. In order to maintain their rule, the ruling classes of Great Britain have never forsworn small concessions, reforms. But it would be a mistake to think that these reforms were revolutionary. You have a higher opinion of ruling classes of my country than I have. But is there a great difference between a small revolution and a great reform? Is not a reform a small revolution? Owing to pressure from below, the pressure of the masses, the bourgeoisie may sometimes concede certain partial reforms while remaining on the basis of the existing social-economic system. Acting in this way, it calculates that these concessions are necessary in order to preserve its class rule. This is the essence of reform. Revolution, however, means the transference of power from one class to another. That is why it is impossible to describe any reform as revolution. I am very grateful to you for this talk, which has meant a great deal to me. In explaining things to me, you probably call to mind how you had to explain the fundamentals of socialism in the illegal circles before the revolution. At the present time, there are only two persons to whose opinion, to whose every word, millions are listening you 
and Roosevelt. Others may preach as much as they like. What they say will never be printed or heeded. I cannot yet appreciate what has been done in your country. I only arrived yesterday. But I have already seen the happy faces of healthy men and women, and I know that something very considerable is being done here. The contrast with 1920 is astounding. Much more could have been done had we Bolsheviks been cleverer. No, if human beings were cleverer. It would be a good thing to invent a five year plan for the reconstruction of the human brain, which obviously lacks many things needed for a perfect social order. <laughs> Don't you intend to stay for the Congress of the Soviet Writers' Union? Unfortunately, I have various engagements to fulfill. I came to see you, and I am very satisfied by our talk. But I intend to discuss with such Soviet writers as I can meet the possibility of their affiliating to the Pen Club. The organization is still weak, but it has branches in many countries, and what is more important, the speeches of its members are widely reported in the press. It insists upon this free expression of opinion, even of opposition opinion. I hope to discuss this point with Gorky. I do not know if you are prepared yet for that much freedom. We Bolsheviks call it self criticism. It is widely used in the USSR. If there is anything I can do to help you, I shall be glad to do so. When H.G. Wells Met Joseph Stalin was read by Adrian Bradley and Chris Stone. If you enjoyed this episode, have a listen to Stalin and Putin A Tale of Two Dictators by Simon Seabag Montefiore, which is linked in the show notes. This has been audio long reads from the New Statesman. This episode was produced by May Robson. The article was commissioned by Kingsley Martin. The features editor was Melissa Deans, and Chris Stone was the executive producer. If you enjoyed this podcast, please make sure to like, subscribe, and rate the show. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowl and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowl and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30 night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com/pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.